Hello, I'm John Wheatley, and this is Coffee Talk. Hello, and welcome again to the official podcast of the Guitar Department at Berklee College of Music. My name's Ian, and we have another episode of Coffee Talk for you. This week, we're joined by guitar professor John Wheatley. John teaches guitar here at Berklee College of Music and over at UMass Lowell, and is a performing jazz guitarist. He's played all over the world with folks like Bucky Pizzarelli, Diana Krall, Howard Alden, Herb Pomeroy, and many others, and he's recorded his own albums as a band leader with John Wheatley and his famous associates. Professor Wheatley is also the author of the book Jazz Swing Guitar, published by Berkeley Press. As always, a lot of this content will also be available on YouTube, and we have a ton of other great content on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. So give us a like and a subscribe on whatever platform you use. Here's our interview with John Wheatley. Hi, everyone. I'm Kim Perlack. I'm the chair of the guitar department at Berklee College of Music, and welcome to another Coffee Talk. As usual, we have Cheryl Bailey with us, assistant chair. Hey, Cheryl. Coffee cheers. Coffee cheers. And Ian Steed, our senior coordinator. Hey, Ian. Hey, everybody. Coffee cheers. And today, we're hanging out with Professor John Wheatley of the guitar department. Hey, John. Hello, Kim. It's, it's a pleasure. To, it's a pleasure to have you too. Um, so, John, do you drink coffee? Got it right here. <laughs> All right. What, how do you take it? What's in there? Oh, I've just had mine and, you know, half and half and uh, nothing out of the ordinary, just, you know, B-flat coffee. Although, uh, <laughs> with uh, sometimes I'm hanging out with Cheryl and she's got a great espresso maker. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's great, especially great. But uh, so we play some duos, as you probably aware. We, we and, keep uh, drinking the espresso so we can play the up-tempo stuff. You do, you do play yeah. that stuff very well, I have to say. Yeah. The metronome, yeah, creeps up and, you know, we make more coffee. Right. Mm. <laughs> you know, it's really interesting because people always want to know when you're in a duo, how do you influence each other? And uh, we'll talk about that musically, but has Cheryl's coffee kind of focus, I'm going to say focus because it's so deep, the focus, has that influenced your, your coffee palette? I don't know. I'm trying like hell to keep up, you know, she plays us, plays up a storm. So, uh, yeah, the coffee helps Mm -hmm. sometimes tea, you know, I take it easy on my stomach. Yeah. Yeah. And I got my Berkeley uh, guitar department mug. That's it's, it's good for morale. But oh yeah, musically it's it's great though. You know, it's one of the great. Uh, you know, you can play with many good players over your course of your career, and mm-hmm. and you you know you you always try to play as well as you possibly can, mm-hmm. and but sometimes you feel a certain chemistry. You know. So I feel that with Cheryl, that, that we interact well and listen well. We don't play exactly the same, so there's enough contrast going on, you know? Mm-hmm. And you two have start, played together more um, in the last few mm-hmm. years since Cheryl's been assistant chair and 
And then no. um, you really adapted over the pandemic and have been pretty consistent, I think, with getting together, yeah. staying in pretty close touch as a duo. Um, did you know each other before really well? Before Cheryl was assistant chair? I did not. Uh, I've not had the pleasure um, of meeting Cheryl anywhere else, but I became aware of her music uh, through the department. But you know how it is, like we're coming and going, we're busy, and we don't always get a chance to connect. And and there's people now that I, I need to get to know better, you know, excellent people, some of them new. But uh, so, you know, I did some listening on the internet. And I said, wow, listen to this lady, you know. Um, I don't know how we first got together. Uh, of course, since, since she's assistant chair, she's, you know, uh, even more on the scene. I think I, I heard, I, we really got, because I was always coming up from New York and in and out, but at one of our soirees for BTOT, I think you played, yeah. you played, um, you stepped out of a dream or something. Oh, okay. And I and I was, I said, wow, yeah, that guy, I like that guy. I want to hang out with that guy. <laughs> and then you had the chance more, Cheryl, when you were around every day. Yeah, and what a, what a great, um, what a great blessing, you know, adding into the to the environment of Berkeley. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. How it's did not you? As often. Uh, I'm sorry. Oh, I was just gonna say, how did you first start playing together? Um, I think that uh, you know when the pandemic was starting up, or no, at some point, I I know it was after you took over for Larry, mm -hmm. somewhere in that range. Um, Cheryl was doing a thing in her office where she would set up lighting and do a short video and you do like a, I, I forget exactly, you do like a one minute lesson or. Yeah, the uh, Meet the Faculty series. Meet the Faculty because it's a large department the students want to know who does what. And so I played a little bit and we got talking and then I think she off, you offered to play with me, which was great. And so we kind of got started. We started talking about the great bebop and modern jazz guitarist, Jimmy Rainey, who's a hero of mine and uh, also of yours, I think. And uh, so I had these duets. So he was, as you know, Jimmy Rainey, uh, he was about, for the benefit of people watching, if you haven't heard the name, he was the same generation as uh, Wes Montgomery. And, um, he was every bit as prominent a player, although he he didn't quite tour constantly. So maybe people don't know his name, perhaps like Jim Hall or Kenny Burrell or some of those guys who co toured constantly year after year, made more and more record. Uh, but he's that big kind of big time individual and very individual as an artist, I think. And also his composing for any number of ensembles, but in particular, what interests us is composing for two guitars. And he, he carries a lot of influence of Johann Sebastian Bach, um, probably uh, uh, Bela Bartok, modernists, as well into the uh, jazz guitar format. And so he loves counterpoint, obviously. 
So anyway, he had written these duets that I've been practicing for years, and I didn't really uh, have a partner to play them with. And so when 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 I showed them to you, well, we got you know fell right into it. But it's great material, and I think that uh, for the students to find out about these jazz giants is they they're you know they're fascinated and the young young players now who are really kind of big deals i think they're aware of him they, they'd have to be yeah that's great that's a really cool way to start playing. i should i should be advertising for the rainy family you know i'm like <laughs> i'm such a, a cheerleader but um there he had two sons john and doug Doug was a great jazz guitar player, now unfortunately deceased. He's got a son, John, who has a website. Anyway, I could I could go on like this for hours, but what else do you want to talk about? <laughs> well, I think before we jump on to some other things, I want to just say to the students who are listening, it is really good to get to know the players that you're into. You know, learn as much about them as you can. Because the more you learn about them and their music and where it comes from, the richer your experience is with the music. And clearly you have done that. And that's so cool that, that you're able to make that connection um, with with his music, but then also with a, a new partner. And um, Oh, yeah. I really think it's... Cool. Don't you think the... Uh, and, you, of course, you have that great duo with uh, Dave... Uh, yeah. Dave Tronzo. Dave Tronzo. Yeah. I think, and Joe Pass said this one time, I think he's right, sometimes the guitar conveys what it can do more vividly when there's two of you than, yeah. than when there's one of you in a group. There's just something about it. It uh, magnifies it. Or, But I get that with you and, and, and Dave. Oh, thanks. Uh, yeah. I you think you're right. I do think you're right because I think... Yeah. I think there's so much of your artistic personality as a soloist and then you have to really communicate with someone else. And and because yeah. there's only two of you to make a singular musical expression, the way that you yeah. have to serve the music and really know each other, there's a difference yeah. between duos who sound like they play together, I think, and duos of two people who just sit next to each other and play. And oh. uh, I feel like you and Cheryl have done that too. You've you really come as different sounds mm. and different approaches. And then you make one thing that's very exciting because it's the sum of those parts, but you're not, it's not like you're just both doing your thing side by side. You're, you're really trying to learn about one another and the yeah. music you're making. And that's what David and I are trying to do too. And I think there's yeah. something really special about that process. Well, I, it helps that we live near each other. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. we, you know, hang out a little bit and, sometimes uh, you know get a snack and rehearse and, mm -hmm. um, well yes absolutely and what I'd love to see I've seen it over the years but even more in the future is more uh, guitar duos among the students in performance um, and you can of course with only two of you there's there's less to worry about in a way, you know, you don't, it's just maybe less of a balancing act because you don't have to worry the 
if the bass player is going to change the chord because he says no it's not a g minor six it's a it's an f sharp seven altered i'm the boss you know <laughs> but with only one other partner it's very comfortable and it can at the same time i think it can go unexpected places you know but cheryl has things in her playing that she plays that i would never think of see so and it might be and the it might be because you're much smarter than me <laughs> i doubt that very much um but it might be true for you too but uh you know we've got the same many of the same influences but uh it comes out you know rainy talks about this a lot when you have a great influence that is lifelong west montgomery john coltrane whoever they're they're kind of regenerating their music through you once you're playing at a high level but it's coming out through your sensibility right it's coming like i'm hearing oh hey pat martino just walked in but it's not pat it's cheryl she loves that music and it's coming out the way she you know so that's quite complex and, and subtle mm -hmm. you know that's really i love how you put that it's like someone walked in the room because i think that is true it's a language that we're all you know you learn the language so that you sit down particularly and do it it's such an immediate conversation i think that's the thing that's so yeah. appealing but also the volume you have such a big range of volume and dynamics and like kim you and david also too you have the acoustic guitar and the electric guitar you know those different yeah places of sounds that you do but i think the number one thing john that i was talking to you about and maybe you could share your thoughts about how you developed it and and maybe some advice for students is your i think the other thing is the the way we feel time together that to me is sort of the foundation of where the trust is yeah you know? so the groove so i'm talking about you know one level time and also feel right so you swing so hard like you know to me you're really a master of that rhythm guitar that it it so swinging and it's never in the way it's always the right thing it's so swinging that i can say for myself when i'm soloing and you're playing rhythm guitar i don't notice you uh-huh i feel you there all the time but uh -huh. there's nothing you know you're always in support of um the music and you, you know you've uh, when we've talked about this many times you often talk about all the work you've done with singers and mm -hmm. that you're really there to serve the melody and serve, you know, in this case, if it's another guitarist, that's the mm. singer. So anyway, I'd love to know how you, who were your influences on that and how mm. you developed that and, and how you can maybe share some thoughts for people that are working on deepening it. Because, you know, that to me, you're, you're a bad dude on that. Cheryl, thanks for saying that exactly the way I wrote it, first of all. <laughs> uh, okay, I hear all this praise, like, my mind wandered, like, okay, who's she talking about? <laughs> uh, no, you're right. You're right. I am very dedicated to uh, 
to accompaniment, and I think it's a great art. And uh, I had some good breaks because I learned from, uh, I got to play a little with Dave McKenna, the great pianist, and he was known, of course, for solo playing. And uh, anytime, of course, if you're a good solo player on guitar or piano, then you you're probably a good accompanist, right? Because basically it's strength, right? It's the strength of being able to play these tunes, get all the good chords in, and as you say, keep it swinging, keep the time rock solid. And so I think piano players were models for me. Uh, some of them I knew and played with like Dave McKenna and uh, Ray, the great Ray Santisi, our own Berkeley's Ray Santisi, who was a giant, um, of course. And uh, Diana Krall, I played with some, although she wasn't a teacher. She was a, she, you know, she's in my, just a few years younger than me. Um, but I'd say I learned from her because uh, she had a very powerful swing and uh, this was not, by the way, the Diana Krall of, you know, of playing for five or 30,000 people. This was the Boston Harbor Hotel, very low key gig years ago. Me, Diana and uh, Whit Brown, a great bass player, who just recently retired. Uh, okay, but back to the musical analysis, I think the only danger is you might overplay with accompaniment, right? And I don't think that that happens with you and me at all. I think that I just want to hear what you're doing and or with anyone I'm accompanying. Uh, if it's singers, there's something I'll, well, I could play a little bit here. There's something I try to avoid doing with singers I try not to play the same lead note in my chord as they are singing, see? So I don't know what they're gonna sing because they improvise, all right? But say we're playing like, it could happen to you. So that way uh, it can be played solo and I'm making sure to keep the time going as you normally would. But if I'm working with a singer and she's singing this note, 
I try not to play this chord because then it's like I'm 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 in her way, you know. She's gonna make that note sound like she wants, so don't let me uh, you know do the job for her. So I'd rather play like right, or I might play like you know. I don't know what she's gonna sing because. Well, people are very different from each other. Some are fairly straight. Another singer I worked with, though, a um, great singer, you know her, uh, Dominique Eade. She's very adventurous, so you never know where she's going to be. But uh, so that was a little trickier, but I got comfortable with it and, and had some great experiences. So really what you're, really what you're saying is, the truth is you don't know what the other person's going to play. So number one, you have to listen. You don't dictate, right? You listen and, and that's really great comping. Um, and also orchestrating is really what you're talking about. Like really listening. You, you want to leave that space. You don't want to, that's the beauty. I think too, also with a duo, in particular, yeah. guitar duo, you have a big space to fill, you know, from the low end to the high end. So you really always, giving that support to how to orchestrate that. Is that, is that something you consciously work on or? Oh, I think so. I think so. And I have uh, a tremendous collection of books. Okay. I mean, I'm, I'm a book man. I figure if it's in a book, I'll get it. <laughs> I mean, it's even better to meet the author, but uh, with, uh, is I going to tell you? Um, yes, I work on these things constantly. Um, I have a lot of books I recommend to students and, you know, don't overplay. I guess I can't stress that enough. Um, the George Van Epps Harmonic Mechanisms for Guitar. This book has you do things like, uh, triads and all the keys. Uh, set, uh, first inversion C triads. Then all the keys, and he, he works you to death, right? But it's all great. Then all the uh, minor keys. Etc. Um, then fast forward to the middle of the book, he's got stuff like the super and sub series. So when I wrote my book for uh, Jonathan Feist and Hal Leonard at Berkeley Press, I put in one thing in there that I derived from the, uh, the, the uh, George Van Epps harmonic mechanisms with the hope that people would learn it and hope that also they would get his book, be motivated to get his book. So you take, here's your triad, right? This is, and you take the, the top and the bottom note of the triad and you move them one step in either direction. So in this case, upward. So, so this, so the E minor triad becomes not, but rather 
and then goes back down. Uh. Then you have to do that through all the keys and of course major and minor and then he's got triads that are spread apart of course you could keep busy like with lifetimes with these books i don't know how he managed to write them it's crazy but uh i can get going on one tangent and <laughs> talk the rest of the hour but well what would be useful is Number one, everybody buy my book. <laughs> uh, see, it's hard for me to promote myself like this being naturally modest. But <laughs> the, the, the publisher requires it. So that's that's the only reason I do it. There you uh, go. Um, let's see. So chords, chords, chords. I got to know Bucky Pizzarelli pretty well. Sadly, he died from COVID. But happily, he had a great, productive, long career. He was like 94 when he when he played when he passed away. Um, he was also that rhythm guitar was unbeatable. Oh, oh, it was unbelievable, and he was such a star, you know, uh, that he didn't need to talk about his accomplishments. But I would talk to him about records. That oh, there's my phone. I would talk, I'm going to turn off the ringer. He would talk to him. I would talk to him about records I loved and say, yeah, do you know about this record? It turned out he was on it, you know, playing rhythm, uh, Ray Charles records, uh, all kinds of West Montgomery things where he played rhythm guitar and, and he knew everybody, but he tried to help people like me who were lesser known and try to give us exposure. And I did make a recording with him with the great Ruby Braff, uh, cornet player of, of note, and Howard Alden was on that too, three guitars. Anyway, Bucky, let me just tell you briefly about the seven string guitar, because I, I don't have it with me now, but I still do that. And um, it's been a great adventure. I, I was afraid of it. And Bucky said, just get one, man, it's easy. And he, he gave me his guitar, he said, do this, do this. He reach. He didn't talk much. He'd reach over and he'd push your fingers. Here, here. You know, that's how he showed you stuff. But uh, and so I, I have had a lot of fun with that. And Larry Bayonne was very supportive, and he let me do a lab with seven string jazz players. Um, and I thought maybe this is gonna take off. You know, pretty soon I'm gonna be on the six o'clock news, you know, John Wheatley, seven string guitar at Berkeley. Didn't quite take off that much. Uh, but if anyone out there wants to play seven string guitar, that's, that's my thing. Um, and there are a few from time to time. And that's wonderful. Also, it's, it's great with this when you're with the singer. Oh, okay. So let me try and tie this whole thing together. Okay. Mm -hmm. George Van Epps, the essence of what he does is to tell you that 
these notes in the chords are not just notes in a chord. They are melodies. They have a past, present, and a future. So that you're not just playing a bunch of chords. They are lines. Of course, this would be something we would have learned in in arranging department at Berkeley, right? And I think students who are watching this, if I can nudge you a little bit, if you don't just play together as a guitar duo, but write things, sit down and write. Do you, do you think so, Kim? Or, or write arrangements for you to play together, take full advantage of the setting. Absolutely. Okay, and you get more out of like, well, that's something you and Dave are excel, excel at. But okay, so applying George Van Epps to this song I played a minute ago, uh, it could happen to you. You might get stuff like this. Instead of just the chord. Now I'm not going to do swing. I'm going to do rubato because I want to have time to play around. John. Yeah. There's where I'd play the low E flat on the seventh string guitar. Yeah. <laughs> That's beautiful. Yeah, it's all those the from the Van Epps and, and also Howard Alden was very generous with me one time and showed me some of those things where what you're saying is that any note in that chord is a place for a melody to develop. Instead of just thinking about it's a clump that you grab under your hand. I mean, it, yeah. you know, it could be the bottom or the middle of the top note of the chord and there could be a melody that comes out and and that's what you're doing with that like taking that the you know it's, I, that's what he calls the mechanisms i know he was very yeah. interested in figuring out all the mechanical ways that those can happen on the guitar but you know really you think about moving a triad in a line it's actually physically a little less physical work but musically it's huge right that's yeah. Yeah. I think so. I mean, that's such a classical musician way of thinking of things too, that everything is counterpoint. Everything is linear. Yeah. Everything is harmonizing itself. There's harmony inherent in the melody. It's how you choose to yeah. 
bring that out and it's beautiful yeah. I, there's so many things that you said in this short time so far that i think are so important that that you've really gone through the different layers of really learning things and working on them Mm -hmm. And you hit on some things that I think people don't think about enough or maybe are afraid to think about, you know, one is rhythm mm -hmm. is so important and really having that foundation in your playing is a foundation for all of your musicianship, whether you're playing rhythm guitar at that moment, like even when you think of melody and when you think of counterpoint, you have this underpinning of a rhythmic wow. sensibility, I think, that you've developed over time. Um, and then, you know, that that you're playing these tunes, but then you're also thinking of, okay, I want to be able to improvise in the moment and play different chord voicings. So how do you work on that? Well, you work on different chord voicings. That exercise that you had with the yeah. triads is so important. And, and then this last point about arranging and writing, I think mm -hmm. so many people are afraid to do that. And, and, you know, it's true that David and I arrange and we write for our duo exclusively but you know we didn't start out that way we started out oh, thinking we're gonna get a grant and commission people who are composers uh -huh. and then in that process of kind of trying to show them who we were yeah we started writing our own music and we had to get over that sort sure. of fear of you know saying like yeah we could do this and we can figure it out you know and we can kind of take on that role and um yeah. And I think like he knows what you know, you know that when you're an improviser, you're spontaneously composing. You're, you are an arranger. That's your job anyway. You're just often doing it in real time. So I think all of these things are really cool for people to listen to from your perspective. That's really great. Well, I'm glad you, if, yeah, we're on the same page. And um, I'm not a classical guitarist. I delve into it in my fashion. Mm -hmm. I practice a lot of classical music uh i don't play the difficult repertoire like you know some of our people you and Bert and others uh but you can still get a lot from it that informs your jazz playing mm -hmm. i think um, can you talk about in that in that regard can you talk about your solo arrangements a little bit because cheryl i don't oh. know if you were around but so john played solo on a lot of our solo duo nights and he'd come with these really beautiful arrangements and you have quite a few of them i have an, a, a huge collection and i even i have a huge collection of them and i have an even huger collection of ones that i hope to learn before i'm dead uh, but <laughs> you know it's like you can't the longer you play you really <laughs> you realize you're never gonna but you surround yourself with great things and great people as i do at berkeley and that's what makes you good, uh, whether or not you learn every last thing. So, um, okay, so I've copied a lot of things from people that I think are great players. And also for uh, students, here's the thing with jazz now, a lot of, and lots of any, many kinds of music, it's, it seems intimidating to some students, doesn't it? Um, and because I like to try and tell people I felt that way. I remember being a kid at a jazz clinic and hearing Marion McPartland play the piano and thinking it, my reaction was disbelief. Nobody can be that good at anything. <laughs> 
And, but you got to realize everybody starts out that way. So don't be afraid of this music just because it's got complexity. I, I just want to say that uh, because we all remember those stages, right? Mm -hmm. And when we were younger. Okay, so the chord solos, for example, I've transcribed and I try with students what all the good teachers do at Berkeley. You sometimes you make them, you know, do this, do this because they need to, right? Other times you kind of sweet tooth it, right? You play a bunch of things for them, you see what gets to them emotionally. And you say, well, maybe you'd like to work this piece out then, okay? So I try to do that and I try to keep enough variety that people will be attracted to it. So for example, a Johnny Smith thing that I've copied, Johnny tuned the sixth string to D almost all the time. John. <laughs> nice. That's a, lot of, that's a lot of music to memorize. Do you do you have a tip for your students to memorize music? You because you have so many things memorized. Yeah, uh, and tune and as well as standard tunes. I once knew almost a thousand standard tunes. Years ago, I practiced them one after the other. I was inspired by Dave McKenna and other great piano players. 
So how do you keep yourself in shape? I'm a little older now. So what I do to keep myself in shape is this. I have a regimen these days. I forget one tune a week. And this, this way I'm able to. <laughs> That's where we need um, to cue the uh, rim shot. <laughs> um, well, I don't know. You, well, you, Cheryl, you, you're a practice hound. So I just keep at it, right? You just keep at it and things sink in. Of course, when you transcribe, and I tell this to students, most of them probably are aware already. When you write something down, it goes into your memory in a different way, more vividly than when you just repeat it. See, that's true with language too. If you, for example, if you want to remember someone's phone number, write it down 10 times. You'll remember it quicker than if you just sit there and try to memorize it. So transcribing, obviously that piece, I, I'm, I love reading. So I copy that down note for note on paper. Also, because I'm practically speaking, I realize I'm going to forget some of these things. And years later, I want to have the library. Uh, but transcribing is great for memory. And we all have a great untapped, or maybe we all have a great ability to remember things. We're just finding out now, science is just finding out that the, the mind is capable of always more than we thought, you know. And uh, so writing things down and uh, memorize tunes, you know, in little four bar pieces or sing them. Do you have I left anything out about mm -hmm. training the memory? No, I think that's great. I mean, do you ever visualize anything? Do you ever like just play it without the guitar? Because that was something oh, we sure. used to do in classical school. Well, I think so. I think there's a, a tipping point where if you practice a, a lot and listen a lot, mm -hmm. then you end up, something kicks in. So you end up, you're actually almost practicing 24 hours a day. You could be waiting for a bus okay. and you're thinking of a tune and next time you play it, you play it differently, not because of the practice, but because of the thinking that's yeah, taking that's place right. in the meantime. I, I just try to try to always come back. They, I, I've heard that your memory functions better if you were to practice, say you're gonna practice an hour and a half today it's a busy day. You'd like to practice even more, but whatever. Your memory uh, is reinforced more if you practice a half an hour three different times during the day than if you do one hour and a half solid. Mm -hmm. Have you heard that? Yeah, I have. I've heard that. There's pretty much a consensus on that. So, yeah. I've never heard it, but often I've thought about it. If the more senses that you involve in the experiences, the better. So sometimes, I mean, probably everyone here has had this happen. You maybe in your practice room, you think, oh, I know this tune. And then you don't get a chance to play it. 
in another setting or at a concert or a gig. Because I think then that is the next experience. I mean, I'll, I'll practice and then I go to the club and I remember, you know, the sound or the lighting in the club or something. You know, there's all these different elements. Or, again, writing it down is another sense of it. So I think it's, for me, I think it's a, if I can involve as many senses as I can in that learning process, it sticks better. Is it more vivid? I think so. For, I mean, at least for me, I, I think that's kind of, the, it, it gives you a, that experience to attach the, it to, you know what I mean? Like, oh yeah, I remember okay. that. It gives you just another layer in to, to embed it, I think. All right. Well, hey, you know, we're talking about singers. That's another reason I love them because I get to hear the lyrics. Sure. And these wonderful tunes that we play had great lyricists as well as great melodists. Mm -hmm. So, for example, take a song that's been played to death, but it's a classic. It never gets old, Body and Soul. So, <clears throat> I almost can't play the song without thinking of the lyrics, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it, it makes it, I like to think it makes my performance that much richer, thinking about the lyrics and the, the, the heartbreak and, you know, it's a self, a lot of them are self-pity songs, you know, that's kind of, that's one of my favorite emotions, you know, everything happens to me, darn that dream. Um, so that makes it much richer. Uh, but, but all these songs, uh, have great lyrics. Mm -hmm. That's true of pop song today's pop songs too, in many cases. Well, I think you know. that's true. I mean, I know Howard Alden was into that and Jack Wilkins. I mean, that's one thing all, all you guys have always made is a important thing. It's not, you know, I think sometimes maybe younger people, they're not aware of that. And also, you know, Peter Bernstein or whatever, you know, I think that's why you're so lyrical because you are. Yeah connected to that melody, the lyric, the, in, the, the emotional impact of the song. I, I think that's all. <laughs> oh yeah, Peter, what a wonderful guy, huh? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, he's been a guest here and I, mm -hmm. I played for him and he was very uh, cool. He, I, I got to sit in with him on a gig later that uh, week. Uh, but well, okay, take a song like You Go To My Head it's a nice enough song by itself. And then the words, you go to my head like a sip of sparkling burgundy brew. <laughs> I mean, that's really special, you know. Well, I think that you all think of it too, like how the text is being painted by the song, you know, and um, yeah. that's just such a beautiful thing. And then if you want to repaint that, reharmonize it, you have that well, in your mind, you know, that's your starting point. That's what you're, you're painting. Um, yes. I think I also love that, you know, I love the way that 
improvisers, like you all tend to, you're able to take things apart. Like you have this beautiful chord melody and then yeah. you see all the context and you're like, well, but I'm going to take this chord structure and use it over here. And I'm going to steal this melody and use it over here. And yeah, that's good part of memory. If people don't do that, like when I was memorizing, memorizing repertoire, classical repertoire, I had this great teacher who would say, like, you'd play a piece and then he'd take everything away, take the score away, especially if you've memorized it, take the guitar away and then say, like, okay, you know, the second phrase, does it start on a pickup? Yeah. You know, what is it made of? You know, what yeah. are those intervals? Is that a arpeggiated triad? Like, does it have tensions yeah. on it? And, and you realize, like, sometimes what you overlook, like, sometimes what you focus on determines what you miss, right? So you're focused on sure. playing this complicated solo arrangement, but have you missed all the parts? That sure. Makes what it is. You know, I think that's beautiful that, that you're thinking about that all the time. Well, you know, I've learned from a lot of good people and um, like all of us, mm -hmm. um, a melody might be based on a motif, right? So when you really look at it, this was one of my highlights as a Berkeley student. I had jazz counterpoint four, whatever it was, with pianist Paul Schmeling. Um, geez, I could never name all the good players I've come in contact with in Boston. I, I leave someone out, but Paul Schmeling. So you're playing a tune like, uh, who can I turn to? And the whole thing is built on one motif. Now it gets treated all kinds of ways. You know, different registers. You're nothing radical. those bass notes with his left-handed thumb if you're listening instead of watching that's great um hey ian what what about you what's on your mind and um what are you thinking about yeah so uh well first of all i really am loving all this uh that you're talking about especially getting like inside these tunes and mm. understanding what's going on and to like connect it to some of the things that cheryl was talking about earlier about just like 
grabbing a chord because I mean, obviously your chord vocabulary is just so, you know, extensive that. Yeah. Well, Bill Levitt, there's another name. Bill Bill Levitt helped all of us, uh, all the players in my generation, uh, Mike Stern, Bill Frizzell, the whatever kind of way that they play. Oh, so I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. I mean, no, totally. I mean, I, I feel like, um, you know, the ability, like having gone through like all the proficiency materials and like really trying to get inside these tunes that like you yeah. start making the way you were talking about, like each note in a chord is, you know, on its way somewhere. Right. There's like the voice leading that makes every note in a chord um, a line, basically, that like, you know, especially when you're playing with uh Cheryl or in any other duo setting that like instead of grabbing a chord you're like making an artistic decision to play certain notes at the same time right <laughs> one hopes um but that's really cool i but there's actually a question that um we ask everybody on this podcast uh and i hope it's not too out <laughs> of left field here but um what's something that students should be thinking about that they might not be aware of or uh, a question that they should be asking their teachers that they might not think to ask? Well, uh, they ask a lot of great questions already, of course, um, but things get overlooked. I think uh, in guitar, sometimes we get a little mechanical and because um, it's, it's kind of a mechanical instrument. But we all like the wind players, right? The saxophonists, the trombonists, the trumpet. And in their world, they have to uh, be able to play in an ensemble and blend. So I would say with students, when you get a teacher that, and you really are in awe of how they play or (laughs) <laughs> something close to that. Pay attention to how they do that. How do they uh, get a good sound? So in the kind of music we've been talking about today, uh, to me, getting a good basic sound on the instrument is very important. That's kind of like where you start, you know. So maybe people could pay even more attention to that and use their teachers to help with that. You know, um, obviously equipment is a big factor, but it's not just the equipment, right? It's the person playing like Cheryl and I could trade guitars and you'd still know which one's playing the solo. (laughs) So it's the, it's the person playing that counts or I could always tell Kim's playing uh, whereas it could be Berta playing but then I could tell it's her you know on the the classical Spanish guitar but yeah there's actually a funny uh, this is like maybe not entirely related because it's a little outside the guitar but uh, the great bluegrass guitar player Tony Rice once talked about the way J.D. Crow this banjo player um his just full sound and that they'd be at these festivals and he would, you know, the guy was, was like totally not shy about his instrument. He just like put it in somebody's hand and be like, Hey, you give it a shot, you know, and somebody else would be playing, you know, one of the top bluegrass 
banjo players of his time to be playing his banjo and he'd, he'd like sit there listening to them and think like god this guy just it does not sound like that huge full like thing that you would imagine from this banjo like it sounds like a toy in somebody else's hand you know and okay. i think that the 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 lesson isn't that you know so and so is good and so and so is bad but like like really it is in the hands right and how you approach the instrument the the lesson you you mean is that we're all individuals is that sure part of and and i guess yeah i mean even two people who sound good might not sound at all the same right yeah um now i don't know much at all about bluegrass banjo i appreciate it I, I do play a traditional jazz banjo, very, very old music and trad groups. Uh, well, here's an example. Like when I was younger, I was at my garage bands and uh, I, one of the guys I really liked was Mike Bloomfield, the blues guitarist. I was trying hard to be like him. The blues guys, that you hear the same licks over and over and over again, right? But they sound, when a master like this does it, it just sounds powerful, right? It's the feeling in it, you know? So I think that, to circle back to your question, what should students be looking for from teachers? Pay attention to the sounds that people get, not just the the theory or the, that was this cool substitute chord, you know, not just the things that you can uh, systematize, but what's your emotional response to hearing this person play? You know, when you hear Jim Kelly, when you hear uh, Mike Williams, they, they have a sound that's good right, right away. So I think the horn players are very keyed into that, especially when they trained in the big bands because you had to blend. Uh, but we, we can pay all, even more attention to it. Um, John, you know, there's a question we usually ask people in the beginning, but I thought I might ask you here as we're coming towards the end of the hour. Um, do you remember something about your first days at Berkeley and like, is there something specific that kind of, I don't know, maybe strikes you still or has carried through in some way that you still feel that way or you still notice that kind of thing? Or I don't know, you can kind of take that question however you want to, but I'm just curious about that. Well, uh, I had a thing that back then the way they, you know, the curriculum was a little different we had something called melody and improvisation. And I had had some good teachers already and I placed into level four my first semester. And I got a teacher who was not much older than us, but vastly more experienced and better, Tony Lada, who played trombone. And the cool thing about Tony was He played the trombone in every class with us, you know. So I thought this guy's putting his heart into his work, you know. He didn't just pontificate and say, now do it, you know. And we weren't at his level, but 
So I think that's still going on. You see this kind of dedication, this kind of engagement. Uh, I heard, uh, I don't know, in those days, you go walk down the ensemble corridor in the evening and people would sign out the rooms uh, six to eight, eight to 10, two hour blocks. And they were always jamming, right? So that's my happiest, that's one piece of it, was that there's always people who want to play all the time and get better and compete, you know, a friendly way and get into good arguments, you know, like who's better, Wayne Shorter or, or Joe Henderson? Right. And waste a lot of time. <laughs> like Branford Marcellus says, I don't know which one of them was better, but either one of them is way better than any of us. So <laughs> stop arguing and start woodshedding. Right. Uh, I don't know. It was a great experience. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, that's really cool. That's and it's great. been really nice to talk to you all today. Um, and I think it's great what you're doing. I hope people watch these things a lot and get to know the faculty, all the different styles that are done. Yeah, it's incredible to hear all the differences and then all the similarities and so many threads, you know. And um, I yeah. think it's fun for all of us, I think, to listen to them and learn something about our friends or, that we see or sometimes just pass in the hallways, you know. Oh, yes. We're on different days sometimes. I think we're fortunate. Hey, if I can grab something to show you before we get done. That sounds great. That sounds great. And uh, while John is grabbing that, Cheryl, is there something that stuck out to you in this hour in particular? Well, I mean, I there's so many things I know that I would ask John, you know, about all those little musical shapes and triads and stuff. But I really, um, I love, well, I love the stuff you're talking about, you know, about it's about the player and the feeling behind that. And also, um, you know, sharing stuff about the triads, really, because that's so for everybody, all styles. Oh, you go crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think, like, if you're listening to this on the podcast version, you can head over to YouTube and take a look. And he, when he demonstrated some of those triad exercises, you can check them out. And um, we're also trying to get our website together with uh, more exercises. So maybe we'll have to mark that one down as one to stick up there. I got the thing I wanted to show you. It's uh, very, we're talking about tone and it's very important to have the correct amplifier. So here it is. Is that it's a, Spam can made it's into the, the spam. Here, there's the input, and there's you use this with your headphones. And oh my gosh, it says. Wait a minute, it says grilled or chilled or or fried. Yes, you can, you oh, it's called the spam. The spam amp. The spam. Uh, my daughter gave me this for Christmas, and you ah. can practice late at night and hear yourself amplified and not keep people awake. That's so uh, <laughs> now here's what I really here's what I really want to show you was I worked pretty hard on this book mm -hmm. and um, a lot of stuff in here introductions how to play an introduction to a song um, etudes studies uh, 
finger twisters and pieces. So. That's a jazz swing guitar for on yeah. Berkeley Press, if you're listening. Yeah. That's wonderful. Thank you, John. In the bookstore, and another great thing about being on the Berkeley faculty was uh, I had the opportunity to do that. And mm -hmm. um, people are using it, and it's, it's changing their life. Uh, <laughs> I think when you play those studies through the fried um, setting on the spam. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Or chill. You get to try it on can, the Now, the blues players will love this too because you can turn up the spice or the heat. And. Oh. <laughs> remember, the great Christmas present. There's only uh, what, 190 shopping days left. Yep. That's right. You could get the spam and you could get the. Put this in the stocking. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Put the book under the tree, you know. There you go. That's <laughs> right. Hey, Ian, what about you? Any last thoughts before we finish this podcast? Yeah, those triad exercises sounded really cool. I'm going to try to find those Jimmy Rainey ones. That's really cool. That's great. Well, there's Jimmy. Jimmy Rainey did a lot of uh, transcribing of his own work, and you can get the, and also the duets that he did with his son. Those things are published. Yeah. Rainey treated the guitar more like a horn, of course, than uh, Van Epps. Van Epps treated it like a whole orchestra. That's uh, cool. So do you get, you know, you collect things from all these different great people and, and take it and just take it up on the bandstand and then just forget it and try to have a good time. <laughs> so, and Cheryl and I have a job this Friday night. Mm -hmm. I hope that we get lots of people there listening, uh, and then maybe they'll make it a regular thing. Yeah, and hopefully yeah. it'll be the first of many, many, many more. Yeah, that, congratulations at getting back out live together. You know, That's I had three awesome. dates booked for Cheryl and me in rhythm section before COVID hit, and they were all canceled. Yeah. So, right. Well, you're back now. I think that's fantastic. And this well, was kind of like the perfect rainy day coffee hang, John. It's a rainy day here. It'll probably still be a rainy day by the time this comes out lot, you know, on our podcast. It's been raining for a week, so it's good to have a lot of stuff to think about and a lot of stuff to practice. There there may actually be a Jim Hall composition called Rainy Day. Mm. Like R A N E Y, Jimmy Rainey. That's <laughs> good. Were... Yeah, Jimmy Rainey, Rainy Day. That that would be. That's a perfect one for today. They were they were uh, mutual admirers. Mm. Yeah. Well, okay. thanks for having me as a guest. Is Thank it you, is John. is it my job to say good good night or no. is someone else going to do that? I'm going to do that. I'll take on that official <laughs> responsibility. You've, you've taken on a lot for us today. So thank you, John. Thanks for Whoa. hanging with us today. Um, thank you, Cheryl, as usual. And thank you, Ian. Cheers to you. Coffee cheers, John, and coffee cheers, everyone. And um, we'll be with you next time on the next Coffee Talk.